welcome to episode 317 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Longtime listeners will know that we subscribe to the regulative principle of podcasting, which means we just keep at it. We continue to try to be faithful to what we've set out as our objective, which is to expound the grace of God through the good news of the gospel and to equip his children in loving him more and in serving him better. And so today, this is a great episode because we're going to talk about the regulative principle, but maybe not in the way people think. It's Slight true. twist. It's, it's true. coming for you. It so is. don't... Don't go regular principle of worship on us too soon. That's not exactly what we're talking about. So hopefully that piques everybody's interest just a little bit because we like to tease just a little taste. It's It's that theological amuse-bouche at the beginning of every TRB episode. I feel like you use the phrase amuse-bouche as often as you can. I do. It's one of those phrases that like anytime you can slip it into conversation, you do. And I love that about you. I just- I appreciate that. It's great. Here's the thing. It, believe it or not, I actually try to regulate my use of a moose bouche because it can get a little snobbish. But here, <laughs> I just let it go. So speaking of letting the whole episode go, let's do a little affirming and denying. Let's start with the negative oh, on my. this episode and end on this high <laughs> note. What are you denying against? Uh, I'm just, uh, this is not going to surprise anybody given that it is the, the 12th of November when we're recording this. I'm just denying politics. Like I'm just... Something about politics in America these days just feels like gross and dirty all the time. And Mm. I don't know if that's like, if that's just, I'm an adult now and I see it and it's always been this way, but it feels like, feels like politics has a a much dirtier game now than it was. I sound like the oldest man on the planet uh, than it was like when I was younger. Like, I just don't feel like I remember it being as gross and dirty and like, underhanded as it as it has been lately so i mean it's a necessary evil you know the the nation has to be governed and i think we have a better system than most in terms of how we elect and appoint officials but uh it's just a gross time of year or a gross time of every couple years i suppose i can get behind that and i'm just going to piggyback on that i had a denial but now I'm, i'm switching i'm calling it audible And I'm actually going to deny against political mailers specifically. To me, that's the worst kind of American politics because not only are basically these days, they mostly like attacking ads. There's like glossy things with pictures and color and images that can't be cheap to produce. But I often think when I go, so what I do is I go get my mail. Then I walk immediately to the outside recycle bin and I sort it all there. <laughs> and I often am not good at checking my mail with any kind of great frequency. And so these tend to build up this time of year. And I gathered all these things and I look just like casually at them. Of course, most of them are attack ads, but also I think whose opinion is being changed by this glossy print? Yeah, seriously. Seriously. Is, is, are somebody's minds being like, listen, I was going the total other direction, but then I got this thing in the mail And I saw it in the flesh. I had it in my hot little hands. And I thought, you know what? I'm doing this wrong. I am totally convinced to go the other way on this. So I really just don't understand these days, the whole print media with respect to all of the American political system and its desire to try to persuade people. What's worse than the the mailers is the text message campaigning. <laughs> so one of the things that happens um, when you you still I think you still have an, a New Hampshire area code, don't you? You bet I do. Yeah. So I still have Minnesota area code, and your wife, my sister, also has a Minnesota area code. And so what happens is I get all. Not only am I getting political um, text messages. I'm getting political text messages from the wrong states usually <laughs> because I'm getting all sorts of stuff that's like like elect such and such a person for November or for Minnesota State Senate. And I'm like, I, I couldn't even vote in this election if I wanted to, let alone I don't want to. So I, I especially like that for some reason. I don't know, maybe it's something about conservatism. conservatism. It's hard to say. Um, I don't get a lot of like text messages from conservative polit- like politicians. It's all like really, really liberal politicians. Uh, and whoever the poor staffer is that gets my message or that texts me, 
gets usually more of a philosophical conversation than they intended. But uh, yeah, usually it's like we go back and forth for a little while and then the person just goes, I'll remove you from our distribution list. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, exactly. Please do. You're doing that right. That's the way. Listen, if you're going to text me, you're going to get a fun little response. We're going to have a conversation. Honestly, the whole texting in the political sphere for me is dangerously close to the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses coming to my door in the sense that I'm a bit like, if you want some, come and get some. Yeah. You kind of want to get that, (laughs) that poor staffer who's going to spend an afternoon trying to dig out of that hole. Yeah. If you're going to come into my sphere, if you're going to kind of come right into my life, to my doorstep, as it were, either physically or virtually or through the phone, then we're going to have a little bit of a conversation. Let's chat it up a little bit. Yep. I think that that is fantastic. I have noticed, of course, I can kind of keep tabs on what's happening in New Hampshire by way of receiving those texts. I kind of know what's going on to some degree because I do get them like you're saying. What I find that's super strange, and again, longtime listeners will know that this is something that I've experienced for quite some time now, is that I generally get all kinds of electronic communication that's not for me. One of those things I'm getting (laughs) recently is I get those kinds of texts for my wife, whose name also starts with J, but we definitely don't share the numbers interchangeably. Like She has her own cell phone. So one might think, well, maybe at some point I connected her name with my number. I I can't see that happening in practice. But yet I get information, and and I know this because the text will say, her name, comma, and then whatever it is that yeah. they want to say. Yeah. I don't understand that at all. So we're just all mixed up here. I get I get texts for my wife as well. I don't know how that happens. Really? I got two texts from the same person within 15 or 20 minutes on this on one phone number. One of them, one of them addressed to me and one of them addressed to my wife. So I don't I don't know how they, whatever list they bought is defective. They should send it back. Yeah, super strange. Really all I know is. is that going back to my original denial that Maybe people who work in indus- different industries know this. Mailers are expensive. They're still oh, yeah. not cheap to do. And especially all this printing, the cardboard, the glossy nature of it, it's just expensive. So I just think, oh my goodness, what a waste of money. Or Unless again, people and people can tell us, info at reformbrotherhood.com, if you are being persuaded by mailers that you receive, if you love them, please let us know. I mean, to be like, Fair though, somebody's done a cost analysis on this and it has to be worthwhile to do it. I can't imagine that like they're just dumping money on something that they have no evidence works. Uh, sometimes I get um sometimes I get a question about like a policy or like a protocol or, or you know, somebody will make a comment about like, oh, they increased this by five cents. What does that even do? And I'm like, somebody somewhere has calculated that they can increase this by five cents and it will improve profit margin by doing so. Uh, and they, they didn't increase at six cents because they calculated that it would decrease profit margin if they, so I I would think that somebody somewhere has done some sort of study that proves that the mailers are worth it. I don't know. Or, and and this is going to get into my affirmation because this is tangential in some ways, or it's possible that there's just major cognitive bias happening in this. In other words, you don't want to be the candidate that doesn't send out the mailers for fear right. that the other candidates will all send out mailers. And if Maybe. you lose, you'll look back with regret and say, we should have sent out mailers. We would have Maybe. actually wanted we sent out the mailers. So I don't really know. I think that's just what you do. And so you've got to compete with the next person who's trying to recruit all the votes. Yeah. And if you don't do that, you're going to regret it. So it's true. I don't know. It might be a little bit of both for sure. So let's, Let's get a little bit more joyous, happy, positive. What are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming uh, with a fantasy novel series. Uh, the, the first trilogy of the series is called the Farseer Trilogy, and it's part of a broader uh, fantasy universe called the Realm of the Elderlings. And so I'm, I just finished book two of the Farseer, Farseer Trilogy, and it's quite good. Um, it's it's sort of your standard medieval fantasy world uh, with a sort of an a, a, at first a poorly defined magic system that you learn about throughout the, the system. And what I really like about the Farseer trilogy, I know that some of the other books in the broader the broader universe don't follow this, but it's it's a first person narrative um, story. And I really like first-person narrative stories because I feel like the um, the development of your knowledge as a reader 
unfolds in a much more organic, like realistic sense, because you're learning things as the character learns things, both about the way that the world works and also about the the plots that's happening. Um, the author of a first person narrative tends not to tip their hat at the twists that are coming down the road um, because they are writing from the perspective of the character. And if the character knew about the twists, then the twists couldn't happen because the character would then anticipate them. So I would encourage people to check it out. It's, it's, um, it's a nice alternative from what I've read to something like the game of Thrones books, which are just as filthy and disgusting and sinful as the the shows. Um, this one is not, you know, it's, it's a secular book. It's a kind of a rough world. Um, but it, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, illicit sex. There's not a lot of cussing. I mean, people use some choice language. The violence in the book is not detailed. It's, it's hinted at in a lot of cases. Um, and when it is described, it's not described in sort of like these really gory, gratuitous, uh, ways. Um, and the main character is just really compelling. You meet him when he is a very, very young child and you really learn about the world and learn, you kind of develop into the reader of this story as the character develops into his own, into his own self throughout the story. So I'm really excited about starting the third one. Uh, first one, if you're looking for it is called the assassin's apprentice. The second one is called Royal assassin. And the third one is called the assassin's quest. And then of course there are other books and other trilogies that I haven't started yet. Sounds super interesting. This is not one that I'm familiar with. I do love a little good fantasy from, you know, really good writers who can develop like yeah. a world that really brings you in and creates like a whole rubric of which you try to process what's going on. So this is good. That's a strong argument for like this idea of a like character driven, more introspective yeah. work. So, and it looks like this is described as epic fantasy. Yes. So, so the question is how is it different or the same or ranked to something that we've talked about before, like Lord of the Rings? Um, It's very different than Lord of the Rings. So, I did have some criticism about the first book. Um, so if you are going to dive into this one, you have to really persevere. The whole, the first book, the entire time, I felt like, oh, this book is such a drag. It's such a drag. It's such a drag. And then it was like the last two or three chapters of the book just like flew by and I was I was hooked. So you have to persevere a little bit. So it's a little bit like Tolkien in that way because because Tolkien's work, the you know Fellowship of the Rings you go on for like six chapters, you're not even out of the Shire and Frodo's still like sitting in his hobbit hole drinking tea most of the time. Um, so I think it's just very different. It's much more action oriented once it actually gets going. Um, and Tolkien, you know, Tolkien was building an entire world, which this author may be doing later on in the story. Um, but Tolkien, my understanding is Tolkien actually was intending to build a world. And so he had to write a story in order to justify his world building. The world building in this is in service to the story. And because it's a first person narrative rather than kind of like this omniscient third person narrative, you only learn about what the character knows. So he, you know, he knows just because he knows the geography of the area, there are these other kingdoms, but he doesn't experience them. So you're not getting bogged down with like details about the political arrangements between different kingdoms, because this character at this point in the story, he doesn't know them and he doesn't need to know them. So I think this is easier. Um, I'm listening to him on audiobook, and that's what I would suggest. The narrator is very good. Um, I think this is easier literature to appropriate and to appreciate. Um, but I mean, Tolkien, I feel like there's some law against me saying it's better than the Lord of the Rings. Like I can't actually say that. I feel like Christopher Tolkien and the the ghost of whatever JR stands for would just like pop down through the ceiling and that'd be the end of it. Although there is a new, there is a new Tolkien book that just came out, which is crazy. Right. Um, they just published the fall That's of Numenor, which is, is interesting. I, I, I'm not that place in the Silmarillion yet, so I don't want to read it to, to spoil it. But um, yeah, I think it's a very good series. It's, it's engaging. The characters are interesting. The voice acting on the, um, the audiobook is very good. It helps. One of the things that I struggle with with long literature books like this, long long fiction novels, is being able to delineate the characters properly um, when you're reading. And so I think in a book like this, whether it's this or Fellowship of the Ring, which we just talked about a little bit ago, having a good voice actor who can actually like help you distinguish the characters by his voice intonation uh, helps a lot. So check it out, Farseer Trilogy. 
First one's called Royalist or Assassin's Apprentice. Um, you have to persevere a little bit though, because it, it's long. I think it's like 54 hours. So, but it's good. It's worth it. By the way, it's Jerome Reginald Reginald. Jerome Reginald Reginald. Right. I love it. Nice. Yeah, it's actually correct. So what you're saying is the world is made for the narrative, not the narrative for the world. Exactly. And I, I think that that's a more engaging story. Not better yeah, necessarily, sure. but it, it it's it's more engaging. Different. At least it makes it more accessible to you right. and interesting from the jump as opposed yeah. to kind of going the other way around. That's a yeah. great affirmation. I like that. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming? I didn't see that coming. So this affirmation comes with just a slight very small kind of rant. I've recommended lots of music in our conversations before. I'm going back to the well on that, but rather than recommending a whole album, actually one that I've already recommended, I'm just affirming with one particular song. And that is everybody should just go look this up. Actually, here's how I have to do this. Go search the song, find it on YouTube or your favorite catcher of all kinds of music. Listen to it with the lyrics in front of you so that you can appreciate it. And I'm affirming with the song Death Be Not Proud by Adalys. This is off their album Into the Sea, which was released in 2015. So this is not a new piece of music, but here's why it's coming to my mind now and into your ears at this moment is because I heard it in the mix of my music this week. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I heard it as I was working and then I got arrested by the lyrics. And I'll say this, this is where the rant comes in a little bit. There is to me a Venn diagram that exists where there's one circle that's behavioral science and the other circle that is theology and where they intersect and overlap there you find economics because I think actually Ooh. theology is the only proper way to understand economics because economics is all about behavior and incentives. And so it misunderstands that behavior can be corrected or rehabilitated without regeneration. That's the major flaw of most economic theory. And one of the flaws of the way that we as people in our sinful state process the world is that we have this mass massive emotional bias called the endowment effect, which is to say that ownership of an asset endows it with additional intangible value such that more value is assigned to something that's owned than something that's not. Yeah. And so what you find is that people, even as they understand our world in which most of life involves some kind of suffering or it's unfair, all those things in general outweigh the great things or the profound blessings that we received often. It's just unfair. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of death. Death is a hundred percent that even in the midst of that people cling to their lives. And the reason why is because the endowment effect, it's something they already own. And so they place this outsized value on it uh, in such a way that they fear death. And so here comes this song. And I love this song and everybody should go look at the lyrics because sometimes in like evangelicalism or just like modern Christianese, we tend to treat death as kind of an enigmatic force, but the Bible personifies it because that's appropriate because it is an enemy. It's one that God defeats. And so this song comes in with this blatant language around death and it's blatant both in its expression of what death is and then blatant and equally forceful in the expression of what God does against this enemy. So this is going to be slightly lengthy, but can I read you some of the lyrics? Would that be cool? Yes. So I'll here's, here's what I'm talking floor. about. This also, thank you. This also just an amuse-bouche of the song. Not to go back to that, but it's just a taste. It really is just a teaser. It's a long song. Go and listen to it because the lyrics are so rich theologically. And I left this. I paused everything I was doing to listen to this again, to be ministered to by it. Here's, here's just a piece. I'm going to skip around a couple parts, but I want you to hear what we're talking about here. And death being personified as the great enemy and as Christ coming in to be the one that defeats it and how this gives us great strength, even leading into what we're about to talk about with the regular principle that comes over all of our lives and also bleeds into and speaks over death. So here are the lyrics. Death, be not proud, though men will fear you and think you're great when they draw near you because you take us down. We can't escape the fact, but I've learned by now your right is just an act. So lay my bones inside a hearse. Take me in and do your worst. But tell me why you choose to boast when you're just a shadow and a ghost. I'll breathe again, you'll be surprised when you're the only one who dies. Death, be not proud, you'll soon find out. Dates on a stone, they're just an alibi, a simple line. It can't sum up my life. 
beneath the tears, the wreaths, the letters, and the roses, God composes a new life as the old one decomposes. So come on, death. I've got your dues. Take them any way you choose and shake the heavens with your smile if my bones are worth your while. But this coffin's just a womb, thanks to the cross and empty tomb. My God will get the final laugh. Death, here he comes, your epitaph. So this is just like, I I wanted to stand up and shout praises to our God who comes in Christ to defeat this final foe and to push away any kind of enigmatic, kind of almost hyper-spiritual, ephemeral sense of death as something that is a force that overwhelms us instead as the enemy personified that God comes to defeat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I made this, um, I had the opportunity, my mom died in February and I had the opportunity to travel back to Minnesota in uh, June. And I was able to share from the Bible during her kind of memorial funeral service. And one of the things I made the point of that I think a lot of people were surprised at is um, we are often taught either explicitly or implicitly that death is sort of like a natural thing. It's just the right. it's just the way of the world. It's it's everybody goes through it. It's natural. It's just the next step, um, which is absolutely a lie for humans. At least it's a, it's a lie. We were not created in order to die. That was not part of the plan. Um, we all will now, and and we all face that. But it's not part of the plan. So I think I think this sounds like an amazing song. I'll have to check out because it sounds like it really leans into that and really articulates it. And we also have this tendency, like you're saying, to treat it as this sort of like like ethereal reality out there rather right. than like a real concrete, actual thing that's coming for us. Now that you can, you can do that, you can overdo that too. Like there's no Grim Reaper, right? There's no like death is not an actual person or an actual thing that is like coming for you. But, um, but we can, we can err on either side of that, but our culture tends to err on the side of it being this like almost like quasi spirits, like death is another dimension. Death is another plane of reality. Like no death, death is like real and concrete in this, this dimension in this plane of reality. And it's going to get you. So hit us with that name for that song again and, and how to find it. Yeah, for sure. This is Death Be Not Proud. It's by the band Adalis from their album Into the Sea, which by my estimation is one of the greatest concept albums ever put together. So you'll enjoy the whole thing. And this is just general rock music. It's not particularly hard. And there's not, I don't think, a lot of screaming. There's some, but it's like, I don't know, there's a lot of worship in this album. And in this song in particular, there's so much good worship because it drives you in an indirect way. Does that make sense? Like some songs are are overtly worshipful in putting into your mouth or your mind these words to worship back to God. And this one, it's stating truths about reality, which I think drives us in our own way to expound words that are our own in worship to God. So that's one of the reasons I really like this song. But I think it's impossible to listen to this and not get... This is an uh, like understatement, jazzed up as yeah. it were. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> it, it's kind of like, yeah, listen, I'm going to die. And it's almost taking pride in that death because it's God yeah. is going to use that death to redeem and to go- show glory onto himself. And in my own dying and being laid in a hearse, which will inevitably happen to me, that even in there, it's not just that there's great hope. There is all of that, but there is going to be a victory and a championship that God brings forth in his grace and through his power to show that he is the one who redeems his children and raises them back to life again. Yeah. So this song has all of that and more. It's like death in a bag of chips. So I'm totally affirming with this every day of the week and, and twice on the Lord's day. Nice. Nice. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just slam into gear here and switch over to our topic. So this is a providential occurrence because this this concept or this episode has been on my own internal document of what episodes are coming up for quite a long time. But then just providentially within the last couple of weeks, I've had several conversations that touch on topics that are going to sort of revolve around what we're talking about. So we kind of tease it in the intro. And most Reformed Christians who are coming into the Reformed tradition um, the the typical entryway is you become convinced of the doctrines of grace, right? The five points of of tulip, um, and then you know usually through the influence of someone like an R.C. Sproul, or these days it's probably more uh, like you used to listen to the Reformed podcast. You start to get introduced to confessional reform theology, 
And then from there, usually the last two pieces of reformed theology that kind of fall into place are um, sort of reformed, a reformed theology of uh, ethics. So like a reformed understanding of the second commandment particularly is, is one of the hardest sort of last pieces. And then the regulative principle of worship, which is not ironically, but unsurprisingly also the second commandment. So the second commandment actually is a much, it's sort of the last piece of the big puzzle usually that falls into place. But what I think is missing in a lot of these conversations is that what is, what is called the RPW, the regulative principle of worship is actually a particular application of a broader principle that is consistent throughout the reform tradition as a whole. And, and we think of the, ref, the regulative principle of worship, which more or less a good definition would be to say that we, uh, we do all that is commanded and only what is commanded in worship, uh, particularly on the Lord's Day, but also other kinds of worship that we, we could articulate are governed by this principle that only that which is commanded in the scripture, either explicitly or by way of good and necessary consequences, is permissible in worshiping God. And the way we've articulated it in the past, kind of to, to summarize that, is God gets to decide as the one who is worthy of worship, he gets to decide the means by which that worship is to be given to him. And that principle, because there is such a focus in sort of new confessionalism, if we want to call it that, this, this sort of new wave of, of previous evangelicals kind of coming into confessional reform theology, because there's such a focus on the, the RPW, we miss the fact that throughout the Reformed tradition and Reformed confessions, this regulative principle that God regulates our actions by command, not just by permission, but he regulates our lives by command is something that's present. And so we focus on the particular application in worship. We miss this broader application. So I want to I want to read a couple confessional statements um, to sort of justify the statement that I just made. So the Scots Confession, which... Um, the Scots Confession, I find to be a really interesting confession to study because it it obviously shares a lot of theology with the Westminster Confession, um, but is not a direct, doesn't have a direct lineage. So like the Irish Articles and the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church, those are a direct um, predecessor to the Westminster Confession. Initially, the Westminster Divines were sought or were tasked with revising the 39 Articles. They kind of started that work and then they abandoned it. And they actually took the 108 Articles of Irish, the Irish Articles of Religion, and modified those into being the uh, Westminster Confession. The Scots Confession theologically is probably a predecessor, but not in like the words and phrases. So here's what the, what chapter 14 of the Scots confession says, the title of the chapter is what works are reputed good before God. And it says, we confess and acknowledge that God has given to man his holy law in which not only are forbidden all such works, which displease and offend his godly majesty, but also are commanded all such as he pleases. And as he hath promised to reward, these works be of two sorts. The one, done to the honor of God, the other to the profit of neighbor. So it's starting out by saying God has commanded in his law, not only by way of forbidding that which displeases him, but by way of commanding that which pleases him. And then if you go to the Westminster uh, Confession, chapter 16 of Good Works, Article 1 says, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. So this principle that we can only say that what God commands is good before God. Now we could quibble and we there's there's lots of conversation that needs to be had about like what kind of works are we talking about? We're talking about works that are considered good in a religious sense that apart from uh, the reality of the fall would be meritorious in God's eyes, not in a strict sense, but in terms of covenant merit, right? So God made a covenant with Adam that included the moral law. He commanded him. And a part of that covenant is that certain works would be rewarded and viewed as meritorious according to that covenant. Adam couldn't just decide to do whatever he wanted and consider that good. And that principle carries over into our lives that if we want to do work that is reputed to be good before God, in terms of something that is genuinely pleasing to God, 
then it has to be something that is commanded by God as such. And that's where I think we we want to land. And this is why this falls in this law series, because this is an element of the law of God that is often missed. The law is not just a list of things you can't do. It is also a list of commands of things that you must do that also genuinely please God. And that's where we want to circle kind of our conversation today. And it goes back to, again, this idea of the law being more than just the 10 words found in the Decalogue, right. but this idea that there's teaching, teaching that's good for us. So I'm going to repurpose the whole thing and use the initialism R-P-A-L, you know, the regulative principle of the abundant life. Because yes. of course, there's in a sense in which God in his sovereignty is regulating all things, but a special sense in which he desires to regulate his children to have abundant life, not for this purpose of, again, constraining for unnecessary means or to somehow remove from their lives, even in the temporal sense, something good, a great blessing. The way I look at this principle is it's like the stopper, which is called the regulator, on a bottle of hot sauce, right? Like you don't want to let out too much hot sauce. You need something to guide you almost against yourself, so to speak, to provide some kind of regulation of the much you get because too much will cause you to tear up and the food will taste horrible because now you can no longer, all you're getting is cap capsation and not that great flavor. You want the balance. Now, of course, that all breaks down. But the reason why this conversation that we're having now comes out of what we talked about last week in terms of all of being able to have Christian liberty in life is because I think at some point, if you're just studying the Reformed theological tradition, you're just going to hear these things over and over again. And even if you just hear them, that's fine. At some point, though, I think you'll probably become increasingly convinced that we can only approach God in his own terms and not just for salvation, but like also in every area of life. I've said this before. It's a bit like every day is God's birthday and on somebody's birthday, you do what they want, but every day is God's birthday. And so this right. idea of the regulative principle of life is the doctrine that everything of religious significance must necessarily be prescribed in the Holy Scripture, either explicitly or by this good and necessary consequence. It's like the Reformed kind of confessional language, this idea of whatever is logically extracted from the Scriptures. And the thing is, this shouldn't be strange to us because like, ultimately the regular principle of life or abundant life is really nothing more than saying that there is a specific application of sola scriptura, that the scripture yes. alone is sufficient for rule and faith and life. And if that's true, it's telling us the truth about all things. And therefore, it is the only thing that can bind our conscience, which leads us back into Christian liberty. So really what we're saying here is if as Reformed people, we take that seriously, then God has just given us this great resource that we might understand what abundant life is like, but it comes not just descriptively, but with this prescriptive mode. It's supposed to regulate our lives. And in that regulation, we find God's great condescension to us that he would communicate this because he's glorious in over all things, no matter what, but that he would give us specific instruction to say, basically, don't hurt yourself or yeah. find the abundant life or come and rest in me. And so that regular principle is the reformed view of how God regulates our lives and provides divine specific appointment. Yeah. And you know, the way that this kind of has played into recent conversations I've had, there's a phenomena that's, that's been happening in the Christian world as long as I can remember, where we want to label certain things as Christian things. So like, the example that came up, and this isn't this isn't overly critical thing, um, but just the context of the conversation, we were having a conversation about Reformed Con or Reform Con, which is a a conference that's put on um, predominantly by people from Apologia Church, and um, there was a a karate demonstration by Jeff Durbin. Jeff Durbin, um, I love Jeff Durbin. I have a lot of respect for Jeff Durbin, um, and he is. Uh, a, world-class martial artist. Like literally he, he is a world-class martial artist. And in the context of the conference, um, it made sense why they were doing it. But the, the conversation that ensued when we saw this video of him doing this karate demonstration was kind of like, what's the difference between reform con and comic con? Like what's, what's the actual difference? What right. makes reform con a distinctly Christian conference versus an interest conference that is an interest in reformed theology or reformed reformed interests, right? Um, so there's this this tendency to label things as Christian organizations, Christian music, Christian 
government is the big thing, right? Like like Christian nationalism. That's the big thing. And my my theory, my thesis is that when we attach the word Christian to something as a description of it, we are associating it with Jesus Christ. We are right. saying in subsense it is a function of the Christian community. And this is where it becomes tricky and I, I used to think that my challenge or my problem with the parachurch movement, the para uh, paraclesial church movement, you think things like um, Together for the Gospel or Gospel Coalition. Um, my critique used to be that they were setting themselves up in parallel to the church and providing sort of this alternate mechanism to, to get teaching and, and all the have accountability, these things. My new sort of approach to this is actually by calling it a Christian organization and, and placing it with all of the trappings of a Christian organization, you actually are attaching it to the church. And the real problem isn't that it's now a parachurch movement. It's right. a church movement that right. isn't actually obligated or bound by the regulative principle of worship, right? When we're talking about worship itself, but isn't bound and isn't operating according to this broader regulative principle as a whole. And so like the way that this plays out is when you're planning a conference and it's a Christian conference, I think you're obligated to ask, what is the regulative principle justification for us doing a karate demonstration? Again, maybe there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe they thought through all of these questions. I don't have any special insight to the planning of this. This was just a conversation that was happening. But what are the implications of this, this idea that God regulates the activities of his people by explicit command or good and necessary consequence? What are the implications of that? Well, the implications of that are, if we want to consider this to be a Christian podcast, a truly Christian podcast, Jesse and I, and I can tell you, we've had these conversations. Right. The decisions we make about what we do on the show, what things we promote on the show, how we fundraise for the show, all of those things, we're doing that um, based out of a conviction that the, the things that we're doing, we can ground in God's explicit commands for the activity as people. Now, we we don't consider this to be an extension of the church. And I think we've been pretty clear about that. We right are on. very, we're very specific to say this is not a, a ministry in the formal sense. I think a lot of podcasts use that language that this is my ministry, this is our ministry. And I get what they're saying. This is this is a something that God has given me to edify his people. But in a certain sense, if we want to truly say this is a Christian podcast or a Christian school or a Christian band or a Christian artist, like a, a Christian painter, right, or Christian politician, whatever it might be, then that person is making a statement that they represent Jesus Christ in the action that they're doing. And the right. only way we can do that and be on good grounds is if our our activity then is regulated by the commands of Jesus Christ. This will get in. We'll get into more of this when we get to in the coming weeks. We're going to be talking about sort of like Christianity and culture. We'll talk about Reform Two Kingdoms views and theonomy. All of this stuff is is leading into this, but we have to wrestle with these questions because we're not given the liberty to just attach Christ's name to anything we want to. We are right. only given the liberty to attach Christ's name to things which He has He has. Um, sanctioned us to do so. And we that doesn't mean that like, oh, just the church and things that are explicitly ecclesiastical. But when we make the decision to attach Christian to something, I say I'm a Christian podcaster versus the, the competing idea might be a podcaster who speaks about Christian topics, right? The big discussion when I was in like youth group age was, what's the difference between Christian music and music that's made by a Christian? And I think that's a valid question to have. And I think right. the answer lies in this understanding that truly Christian music is regulated by the word of God and requires a justification from the word of God to substantiate why decisions are made. Yeah, that's right on. I mean, I think the question we're actually saying, like if we were to kind of distill it down into more colloquial language would be, how do we find out how to glorify God in all of life? That's why this conversation ends up almost inevitably in this idea of what happens on the Lord's day. But beyond that, like the same way we find out how to glorify God in worship on the Lord's day, we consult his words. So the sufficiency of scripture is for all of life. It's not right. for just one segment of it. That's, I think, of course, what we're trying to say. But 
beyond that, in everything we do, we should seek to obey God's commands. You can't, I like your idea, like flippantly just say, this is a Christian thing. I always think of my time in teaching Christian college students in business and finance and economics, where sometimes what they would be promulgated, what would be presented to them was, well, listen, you're not going to be pastors. You're not going to be work in uh, as missionaries. So the best that you can do is like take some kind of business acumen that you have that I would argue is God given, but somehow imbue it with Christian principles. Right. That's altogether backwards. It's this idea that if all of life is to be an act of worship, even as Paul says, whatever you do, do it in a way that glorifies God, then we have to come to terms with the fact that in some way God is requiring that as his children, we take that seriously, we wrestle through that stuff. Now, of course, there are human activities for which there's no explicit biblical prescription. So for instance, scripture is not going to tell me how to like change my windshield wiper blades, or in my case, more aptly, explain how my wife should change my windshield wiper (laughs) blades. But- The thing is, the question that we're after, which you've already brought up, is like, what does it mean for a Christian to do that? And if you think that's like a lame and really like ridiculous example, I would present to you that it's not really, because what we're after is all of life coming under the lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit in such a way that it is different, markedly different. But I think that it has to be different in its intent before it can be different in its content. And sometimes we have to ask, is the content markedly different? We can't just say, well, because I'm a Christian, everything I do is therefore Christian-oriented. That's not, in fact, what God is after here. I think he's saying we, we need to examine ourselves, our hearts, our attitudes, but it's the hard work of doing that thing. So we know, for instance, that there are certain principles that seem to, the scripture draws out as glorifying God. And any, for instance, in everything, we should be motivated by faith. We should be motivated by love. We should be motivated to act in a way that brings about the greatest notoriety and glory for the name of Jesus Christ. And we should do those things, as the scripture tells us, with all our heart, soul, and mind. So these are like tremendously high expectations that God has on our part. But they are indicative and they are imperative and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit that resides within us. I think sometimes we just kind of cheapen this, right? Like we have everything from... Christian mints to right. Christian music, like CCM by itself is like, well, just because a Christian artist makes the music, we say that's Christian music. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you should put everybody on blast who's saying that. I'm just saying it takes like a little bit of processing, distilling and passing through the sieve of scripture to really kind of get to the center of is that question, including our own behaviors. So this is really like a conversation that in some ways is like, well, it definitely is intramural, isn't it? Yeah. This is for the children in the family of God to say, listen, loved ones, are we following the regulative principle? And once again, I want to say, like for my own life, as I process this, I see that the regulative principle, like regulation is is a word that at least in Western societies, we scoff at. It calls us to bristle because we don't like to be regulated. Yeah. We want to be independent or we see regulation as an infringement on rights. And it's not this way. When God regulates, he brings in the truth to bring abundant life. And so really this is God saying, be, become liberalized, become free, become at liberty with what it means to worship me in a way that's unencumbered by sin. And he's after that in our lives in every way he wants to release us. And so I see like this great, this great call to regulation as this continuing call to like true reformation not in behavior, but in the heart. Right. And so I'm like really convicted by all that. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that I've, um, I think that the careful listener who already is, is well-versed in a lot of these is going to not be surprised by the direction we're going to go with this. I think this necessarily, this idea necessarily leads to some sort of two kingdoms view, right? And, and when you think about it, the the idea of like Christian music and non-Christian music, that's a two kingdoms view, right? And so you have this idea that there are some things that can only be done by Christians, right? They're, they're so distinctively Christian that there's no non-Christian expression of it. And then there are some things that are so distinctively secular that there can be no distinctly Christian expression of it, right? Like, how do I change my tires in a Christian way? 
Right. That, that, that's a kind of an incoherent statement. And then there are some things that fall in a, a not a middle ground, but a third category that they can be done either in a distinctly Christian way or not in a distinctly Christian way. So something like music. I remember when I was in high school, the big like controversy in my youth group was whether or not Sixpence None the Richer was a Christian band or not. And it was it was all based on the fact that like one of their albums had a lot of overtly Christian to- like themes and songs, and they were they I, at one point they were I believe they were on a Christian recording label, and then the song "Kiss Me" right came out, and it's not Christian at all. There's no Christian content, whatever. It's just sort of like your general poppy love song, like you know. So there was this big debate over whether they were a Christian band or not, and I would I would argue that it's that's actually probably the wrong way to look at it. And so what I would say is there are, there are things that we do that we do distinctly as Christians. And then there are things that we do that are just common kingdom, not kingdom of God, but just common earthly kingdom things, right? I go to work every day. I help patients access healthcare. That's my job in a roundabout fashion is my job is to make sure people can get, get access to the healthcare they need and to help facilitate that. I'm a Christian doing that, and I obviously and I necessarily bring my own Christian presence and morals and behavior into that role. I'm required to act as a Christian in everything I do because I'm never not a Christian. But there's nothing that I do in my job that is distinctly Christian. So I can't say that I have a Christian job, right? I have a secular job. I work a secular job. That doesn't mean that I can't bring glory to God in the working of my job. But my job is not intrinsically Christian. There's nothing distinctly Christian about it. Christian music versus non-Christian music, right? I don't know what makes something like um, Bach, right? I I, do, I don't know if he makes Christian music or not. There's no words to most of his music. So like, is it Christian? Is it not Christian? Well, <laughs> he was a Christian producing music. Does the fact that he wrote SDG on everything he wrote, like, does that make it Christian music? Probably not. So I think these are questions that we are forced to wrestle with. And especially when we start to talk in the coming weeks about different responses of Christians to culture, we're going to talk about theonomy, right? We're going to talk about two kingdoms, theology, transformationalism. We're going to talk about all those things. And each of these positions have a different way of looking at this particular question that we're asking today. It's why we're leading in with this. The theonomy view would say that the political realm is the Christian realm. It's governed by Christian principles, right? That's Christian nationalism, which is just theonomy in a particular register, I guess. Transformationalism would sort of actually say the same thing. All of life is worship, and therefore all of life must be regulated by God's word, but it does so in a different way. So I just wanted to sort of like spend this week to kind of intro that question, kind of key into the fact that this re- this this principle that Christians should have that all of life is regulated by God's word, but not in the same way in each instance. That's the kind of the takeaway from today. Yes, as Christians, everything we do is is re- is regulated by God. Everything we do is regulated by his word. But there's a difference between... So here's the, the thought experiment that I would... I'm not going to give an answer to what I think. I think people probably can come to the conclusion of what I, how I would answer this. But if we were to suppose a small town government right? A city council that has maybe five or six people on it. I suppose it wouldn't be six. It'd probably be five or seven people on it. They usually are odd numbers. A city council that has five five council persons on it, councilmen. If each of those councilmen are Christians, true, genuine Christians, who bring all their Christian convictions in, they legislate, they govern with their Christian convictions in view, is that therefore a Christian government? Some would answer yes. It's comprised of Christians. They govern in Christian ways. Some would answer no and say, well, there's nothing distinctly Christian about the way they govern. They attempt to apply the, the moral law of God as accessible by the light of nature. They attempt to apply that, but it's not like they're just slapping down the book of Leviticus and saying like, this is the new municipal code, right? It's not a theocracy. So that's the question that I think we have to answer. And, and we're going to come into the next coming weeks looking at different models for how different Christians would explain and understand the answer to that question and what the ideal situation would be, because different groups are going to have different answers for what that situation would be as well. And part of the confusion, I think, that belies all of this is that we get almost 
inappropriately focused on the output rather than the input. So it's true in my own industry. What does it look like to be like a Christian person working in finance? To your point, I'm not sure. And it may not at certain times look any different than anybody else. What is different and what kind of comes under this regulative principle of the abundant life is all of the inputs to the same activities, even if they have the same output. So this idea that we are governed in the way that we approach something, sometimes that will result in something different. You know, we've long made fun of that idea of like, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That doesn't always happen. I mean, obviously that's kind of bunk, but beyond that, it's not like somebody just observing you in your professional world would say, oh, listen, Tony's definitely a Christian. See, the way that he picks up the phone when he right. answers a call is like distinctly <laughs> Christian. I yeah. want to, you know, like this idea of like, I want to ask Tony what's different about the way he answers the phone call. Right. And that way I'm going to be saved by that. It might not look any different, but the empathy with which you bring to that call, the way in which you are quick and motivated to respond to the demands of your boss that intent, which is beyond the sight of any particular person, but is in the eyes of God, is what matters. Right. And so we need to kind of get that beyond this idea that like, well, somehow I need to be purposely manifest in every little thing I do. But at the same time, recognize that every little thing you do, the intent is a thing that matters to God. And that's what falls under his regulation. So there's something here, I think, that challenges all of us. Because it's not to say you must try to manufacture your life in a way that even the mundane things become different, but the motivations behind the mundane things ought to be different. Right. I mean, that's, again, Paul goes to the extreme level when he says, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. What could be more mundane, more sustainable, more normative than eating and drinking? And he calls out these things. So one might argue if you're sitting at a meal with a bunch of people and some are believers and some are not, who's going to look at the table and be like, Christian, Christian, not Christian, by the way that you're consuming tacos, right? right? Like that output is not going to be manifest, but the way in which you're eternally processing that, being thankful for the situation, giving glory to God, even in your consumption, recognizing that the delicious tacos are God's good gift to you, that is absolutely different. And it will be perceived, of course, by God who is judging the heart and not the external manifestation or the output. These things do matter, loved ones. Like this is the challenge that God gives us. And it's why talking about the regular principle of the abundant life is so important because I think at least it draws our minds to the fact that whatever we do, we ought to be putting a mind toward doing it in a way that worships God. And that brings us greater joy. It brings us greater appreciation. And it's it's a life worth living. There, yeah. There's a temporal sustenance in that we are fed by God as we worship him in even the most mundane way. So I love this conversation, right? Because like, again, it comes out of everything we talked about Christian liberty. This almost justifies why Christian liberty is a thing that we ought to understand and pursue, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, one thing you said, um, I don't remember when it was, somewhere in the back catalog, you said something at one point that really stuck with me. And I think this is the difference between this idea that there's some distinctly Christian way to do something versus a Christian doing something that is not distinctly Christian. Yes. And I remember at one point you were talking about how you, you, um, you're try you were trying at the time to be more quick to just behave in a Christian fashion in response to things. And what, what was meant by that at the time was, you know, if, if a coworker says to you, wow, you did a really good job on that presentation rather than just kind of saying like, oh yeah, thank you. I worked really hard on it you would say something more like, well, God just gave me the diligence to really, mm, really right pour on. into it. And right there's nothing, there wouldn't have been, you know, in that scenario, there's nothing distinctly Christian about the act of studying something, right? It's the same mechanism. It's the same thing. And this is why I think that practice of being a Christian doing something versus this concept of doing something in a Christian way, right? that feels like a really subtle distinction, but it's actually a, very, a world of difference, Right. There's nothing distinct about the way that I answer a phone call. There's nothing distinct about the way that I process a patient complaint or concern through our system. There's there's nothing distinct about it. And so if I want my coworkers to understand that the reason that I do that with integrity, the reason that I do that, um, I try to be efficient. I try to be honest. I try to do so not wasting resources. I try to be respectful to and and assume the best of people. The reason I do those things, which all my coworkers also do, 
the reason that I do them is different. So that needs to be verbalized, though. This, this goes back to exactly what you just said. This idea that if we just preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary, the simple fact of the matter is, loved ones, most of the time, most of our activities operate outside of the church in not distinctly Christian fashion. The only way we're going to be distinguished as Christians in those scenarios is if we tell people why we're doing things the way we're doing them. Right on. It's not going to be enough just to be honest. There are lots of people in the world from a relative perspective of comparing man to man. There are lots of people who are honest people, right? I trust my coworkers not to lie about everything all the time. And they trust me not to lie about everything all the time. The reason that I don't lie about things all the time is different than the reason they don't. Exactly. Right. And that's what needs to be verbalized. Right. And that's where this conversation needs to be important for us as Christians is that that verbalization of the reason why we give, why we do particular things, the particular ways we do. If we want those to be reasons that glorify God and we want to give God glory for those things, which we should want to do, they need to be rooted in God's word. Those actions are regulated by God's word such that I can't just tell someone, well, I don't steal uh, because I think in some vague sense that that glorifies God. No, I don't steal because God's word forbids me from stealing. It commands Amen. me to be generous. Right. right. When I offer to buy, when I bring in donuts on a Friday, just because I stopped at the store and I thought maybe my coworkers would like donuts. If I bring in those donuts, that could be anyone bringing in donuts. People bring in donuts to work all the time. My waistline can tell you they bring in donuts all the time. <laughs> But if I want to make, if I want my Christian or my coworkers to know that I did that because of my commitment to Christ, I need to say that. You got to say it. Right. I'm, oh, but donuts, what's the occasion? Well, God's been so generous to me and he is a generous God and he wants me to be a generous person. And I just thought that I could bless you by bringing in these donuts today. God's given me more than I need. And I wanted to share that with you. Right. I mean, that's, that's as straightforward as it needs to be. And that's not even an awkward conversation. Like, People feel like, oh, if I say that, then I'm going to be the weird one. Most people are not going to think that's all that weird. They probably aren't going to think much of it at all. But now that's there. And now they're accountable for the knowledge that you've given them. So this is a this is an important conversation to have. We're going to come back to a lot of these themes over the next couple of weeks with these different models of how Christians interact with and engage with culture. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is something that gets missed a lot of times. Because of our focus on like the regular principle as it applies to worship, we think that the regulative principle is only associated with how it applies right. to worship. But all throughout the Reformed tradition, I'm sure I haven't done the work to look at a bunch of different confessions, but you see this in the Scots Confession, the Irish Articles, the Westminster Confession. I would be willing to bet that you find it in the, the three forms of unity. You probably find it in the, you know, the, the other lesser known Reformed confessions like the French Confession. I'm sure it, the same theology shows up there. And it shows up in the writings. I mean, the Puritans... Like literally the Puritans are known for regulating jam. all of life by the word right. of God. That's like their defining feature. So I, I don't know why people are surprised when this comes up and I don't know why people push so hard against it. It's kind of baked into the way we think about things. And just just to put a put a punctuation, an exclamation point on that, not an interrobang because I'm quite certain, but an exclamation point. I've referenced this before, but this principle is just baked into the foundation of Reformed theology, right? Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? So the purpose of everything we do is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question two, what rule hath God given us to direct how we may glorify and enjoy him, right? How do we know how to accomplish that first call or that that chief end? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how right. we may glorify and enjoy him. So the scriptures are the only thing we have and the only thing we need to know what it is to glorify and enjoy God. So if we're thinking that we're somehow glorifying God or enjoying him outside of how the scriptures have directed us to do so, we're on really, really dangerous ground. And of course, if you are a fan of Paul's argument from the greater to the lesser in why wouldn't you be? Because that's just biblical. <laughs> then it's easy to see here, if you're making the argument that on the Lord's day, worship is regulated by the scriptures, then again, if all of life is in some way worship, 
then also we find the scriptures give us everything that we need for this. And again, I know I'm kind of harping on this, but to use like one final metaphor, I see this great regulation as the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that God can give us in this temporal existence, because the regulation is a bit like the same regulation that you might find in a recipe. If you're making empanadas and you want the empanadas to be successful, then the recipe regulates the method by which you construct them in the ingredients that you use to make them. And in the same way, it's just such a delight that God gives us the truth about that abundant life. It's not just that he's saying when he says, no, don't hurt yourself. It is that, but it's also, this is where obedience results in great blessing. Yes. And it's because he rewards his children, but also because he just tells us the truth about the way the world is and about what it means for us to function in this world in a way that will bring us joy and bring him glory, which is to say they are the same thing. Yeah. So it is just a great blessing. Like there's a great condescension in God that he would give this explicit instruction. And also, honestly, that he'd help us wrestle through the parts that are now overtly prescriptive. Like you said, what does it mean for a Christian to pick up the phone quickly to answer and serve somebody else? On the outside, it might might look like the same as the person who's not a Christian, but has great volition. And yet that intent will be totally different. And the Christian is worshiping God to a great degree. And the other person is not, even though the outcome looks the same. Yep. This is the lovely thing about bringing all of life into the glory of God. God is big enough that everything should give him glory if we mean it to. The question is, do we mean it to? And in that meaning, are we seeking out what we ought to do in obedience by going to the source, which is the scripture? So maybe like on 90% of our episodes, as we talk about a particular topic, we end up in this place where it's like, go just get pickled in the scriptures. Go marinate to a great degree where you submerged and you take on that great flavoring that happens in the scriptures. Whatever metaphor you want to use, muscle memory, pickling, marinating, whatever it is, it's the idea where it becomes normative by the power of the Holy Spirit because we are doing the things that God wants for us to do. And I think the world will not understand this because what they'll see is regulation by way of prescriptive constrainment in our lives. And what we say actually in great contrast to that, almost in irony to their perspective is, oh my goodness, this regulation is great freedom. Yeah. And in it, we find our greatest expression of what it actually means to be human. Like Jesus was at the same time, the most free and the most constrained. You know what I'm saying? Like, because he lived underneath the law, he learned obedience through suffering. Yeah. And in that, he was the great example of this RPAL. And yet he was also the one at the greatest freedom, greatest liberty, closest to God, the father. And while we can't obtain that because he was exactly the son of God, we know that he wants for us to have that in this life. And then of course the perfection in the one to come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. We'll come back to a lot of these themes over the next couple of weeks here. Um, if I could ask everybody just to do me a solid. So we've, we've been promoting our telegram channel for quite some time. And if you've been on the fence and you're like, I don't know what's in it for me. Well, first of all, you know, you know, you don't even know what you're missing, but second of all, <laughs> now is the time to join. And here's the reason. Telegram just introduced a new feature for groups that are larger than 200. And this feature is you can have dedicated topics and each topic serves as a sub group within the main group, which is something that we've been missing. And and we, I love the telegram chat, but it sometimes can be a little chaotic because we might have someone who's talking about one theological topic. And then another person wants to ask about a, a, you know, a cupcake recipe. And then one other person is, is (laughs) in there and they're, they're looking for the phone number to a local church. It can get a little like chaotic. And this feature is something that we've been looking for for a long time, but we need somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people to join in order for this feature to get unlocked. That's it. So that's not a lot of people. There are definitely at least 50 people who are hearing my voice right now that are not part of the telegram channel. So if you could help us out and then also, join like the coolest, best Christian community, distinctly Christian. <laughs> we operate in a distinctly Christian fashion. We are regulated by the word of God. Facts. Uh, then go to t.me, the letter t.me slash reform brotherhood. If you don't have the app and you're not signed up, it should bring you to instructions for how to get registered for Telegram and then how to get the app. If you do have the app, it should open your app up and go directly to it. You don't need to be approved. There's no application process. You just jump straight in. 
Um, I'm actually thinking about leaving all of the bots that join and try to spam us, just leaving them in there long enough for us to get to 200 so we can get this feature. Don't make me do that. Just join the group. It's so much fun. It's There's such great brothers. Not a day goes by that somebody doesn't ask somebody else for prayer, and not a day goes by that someone isn't following up with someone else about a prayer request. It really is a community that seeks to be above sort of the dirtiness of, of social media, just the this just sort of smarminess of a lot of what goes on on Twitter and Facebook. We really try to love each other and be charitable and honest and direct, which is something that's missing in a lot of social media interactions. So check it out. T.me slash reform brotherhood. You won't regret it. You you won't just do it. Yeah. Just go and do, do it. I, actually, we only need uh, 47 oh, more man. people. And as we record this, this just goes to show you, I think, the extent to which there's always some action going on there and there's people dialoguing and first thing there's nine people online right now. I yeah. mean, so at any given point in time, you're going to find that people are online. So yes, I think that is a fantastic idea. It's kind of a novel experiment, isn't it? Because it's this yeah. idea of saying what happens if we get people together and this legit real time chat network where there is the ability to converse back and forth with something that's going on yeah. right now, not like kind of this message board or Facebook style posting, but it's a grand, great messaging experiment that happens in real time. It's unique. I, it is fun. I think people should go and check it out. It, it just, but yeah, to get to the point where we get 200 so that you can start to parse out the different conversations, that is worthwhile. It costs everybody nothing, right? Except right. Maybe a second of your time. Yeah. Even if you just sign up to help me out, that's fine too. That's fine too. Yeah. Listen, whatever did, you Did do. you do it yet? We're going to, the episode's going to keep going until you, no, it's not. So we appreciate uh, all of our listeners. If you are interested in helping fund the Brotherhood, uh, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash join the Brotherhood. You should find links there to uh, both our merch store, which we've got t-shirts and beer, pint glasses and stuff on there. But you can also check us out on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash reformbrotherhood. If you have fulfilled your obligation to your local church by giving generously and out of your abundance, uh, and you have a little bit more that you'd like to share with us, you can do that through Patreon. Uh, you're not going to get any sweet gear or anything like that. Um, you're just going to have the knowledge that you've helped us continue to spread God's word and to, to try to share good reformed theology. Uh, and we so appreciate the people that come alongside us and um, share out of their resources and their time. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, there are some costs for the podcast. They're not a lot, but uh, every little bit that we are able to get in from the community helps us to make sure that this podcast is always available, always free and is always working well. I love that. Well, I would say, Tony, that this episode, like all of the 316 that preceded it, have been distinctly Christian. Yes. This is a Christian podcast. <laughs> and I say that I say that only slightly tongue-in-cheek. Because yes. until next time, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.